Okay, welcome to the Thriving School Community Podcast. I'm so excited because Dr. Cameron Caswell, my co-author of our book, Improving School Mental Health, The Thriving School Community Solution, is here with us. Oh my gosh, Cam, let me give a little bit of a background on you, and then we're going to just dive right in because you're going to tell us all about why you think we're in a youth mental health crisis and why we're using our schools as a resource to solve that darn problem. So um, we we represent um, Dr. Cam Caswell as the teen translator. She's an adolescent psychologist, a family success coach, and the co-creator of the Thriving School Community. It's a revolutionary program designed for schools to improve student staff, and parent well-being. We're going to hone in on the parent side with Dr. Cam Caswell here today. For over two decades, Dr. Cam has been helping parents build strong, positive relationships, and she's also a TEDx speaker, host of Parenting Teens with the Dr. Cam podcast, co-creator of I Am Enough. It's a teen 12-week workshop, and there's just so much more that you do, Dr. Cam, that we're going to dive into, but I want people to have a really great background. But first of all, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so great that you're doing this. Woo! I know and that we're doing this. So yeah. for listeners who don't really understand, Dr. Cam and I came together a few years ago by now, actually. Yeah. And we, we spent like a year writing a book together after we talked about problems that we are seeing with youth. So give me like your insight of what that is. Yeah. So I work with teens and their parents. And I keep seeing the same problems over and over and over again. And when you look at those problems, they keep stemming from the same issues. And it was it's frustrating because I'm on one end saying, how do I fix or help them address these issues down the road? when we could be preventing the issues from occurring because a lot of the reasons behind them are not that difficult when you get down to it, to fixing or to, to addressing and changing. But man, when they get to me and when they get to the, to the problem place, that's when it gets really difficult to fix. And now the system's overwhelmed and there's not enough mental health professionals to address it all. Teachers aren't equipped to address it. Parents aren't addressed to are equipped to address it. We're focusing on equipping students with these skills often after they've needed them, after it's occurred, but then throwing them right back into the toxic environments and environments that have caused those issues to occur in the first place. Um, I see a lot of people blaming the kids. What's up with this generation? Why are they so disrespectful? Why do they have so many, you know, why are they so overwhelmed? Well, kids weren't born that way. It's not suddenly this generation was born being difficult and having mental health <laughs> struggles. They're, they're from their environment. It's from their environment. So it's not the kids. It's the environment they're growing up in that needs to change. And that's what you and I are focused on is how do we change those environments both at school and at home so they're consistently in a better place that's boosting their well-being rather than hindering it. How do we create that? And that's why we're so excited to work together because we come with different perspectives and we were able to really, man, we had some great discussions, didn't we? 
We really did. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, that's like, there's so many things I want to dive into with you. Let's go back then to talking about those common issues that you say that keep showing up over and over in your yeah. practice with parents and teens. What are some of those issues? Um, one is that they are overwhelmed, stressed out and anxious often about school. And a lot of the conflict I'm seeing and the frustration where parents come to me is they often start off with my child's grades are not where they should be. And that is, you know, I'm doing everything to try to motivate them to do better. They're not motivated. We're fighting. They're lazy. I see this a lot. So the parents are worried. Oh my gosh, my child's not doing what they need to do in school. Every time I say something, they melt down or they yell back or it's like this fight. Why can't they just do it? And the kids are coming to me saying, I'm miserable in school. Um, I can't motivate myself because it's not interesting to me. Um, and then in order to motivate me, my parents take away the one, the things that I actually like to do that make me want to get up in the morning and now I have nothing and I don't care anymore and I it doesn't matter and all they care about is my grades and not what I need or what I want and that's not what the parents mean but that's what the kids are receiving and so they're shutting down they're hiding in their rooms they're completely demotivated to even try anymore because why bother they're never going to do it well enough um and we get in these cycles and all of a sudden the kids feel like the parents are mad at them and don't like who they are. The parents feel like the kids are mad at them and, and angry that they're trying to push them to do stuff they don't want to do. And we're creating all this conflict that's completely unnecessary because everyone wants the same thing. We're just going about it in a way that's sending the wrong messages. Hmm. Let's talk about then the overwhelm that you're seeing at home that's spilling yeah. over into the schools. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I see a lot is that parents feel a responsibility and you and I are parents. So we feel that responsibility too. So I completely relate. We feel this responsibility to make sure our kids are doing what they need to succeed. And school has been put at the very top of that priority list. Grades are at the top of the priority list. That's just what society is telling us, right? right. And so we will basically sacrifice joy in our house and connection with our kids and listening to our kids in order to push them to do what we know they need to do. And then we say parenting is really hard. Parenting is not what I, it was meant to be. This is not what I wanted. I'm so frustrated. My kids are so difficult. I don't know what's going on. And the problem is we feel so pressured to achieve this that we're not really focusing on what we're trying to accomplish in the long term. And so we do short-term solutions in order to try to achieve something down the road, which by the way, isn't guaranteed. So this belief that we need our kids to achieve and to succeed and excel at everything right now in order to set them up for a future is putting us in a dynamic that is actually undermining the very things that they do need to succeed in the future, which is confidence, autonomy, 
connection with us, feeling like they're accepted and belonging, um, all these things we are sacrificing to try to attain something that has not been directly linked with success. Hmm. So that's one of the things. So I think that pressure is what's causing the overwhelm. And because our approach to do that actually backfires because we do things like I just said to motivate them that actually demotivates them. We're causing a bigger issue at home. And then they go into school stressed out, focused on grades, worried about what their parents are going to think. And they take that into the classroom. And we teachers are seeing that in the classroom. Wow. Gosh, Dr. Kim, that it's so important to show that there's a link because we know that there is a disconnect with parent engagement in schools and not everywhere. I'm sure a lot of them are doing it right. But what you and I see is, is, is there, right? That there's a disconnect a lot. So why is it that we need to link parents into the school community more? And what I want you to do is actually share that story with your, with your client who will call Sam. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So Sam was, um, or is one of my clients who in high school, um, dealing with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. And she texted me one day in the middle of the day and was, you know, said, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm at school. I'm freaking out and I'm having an attack and I don't know what to do. And I didn't want her to be alone. And I mean, I couldn't go. It's in the middle of the day. It's in school. So I asked her, I said, is there anyone at school that you can talk to? I know there is, right? There's counselors, there's teachers, there's social workers. And her reply was a simple no. And I said, you know, and I asked her, I said, well, I don't want you to be alone. Is there anyone there that you and, and we're not we're not talking about a small school here no okay. we're talking a very large school we're a very large school that has a lot of resources um and I said is there how about your counselor like I know there's a counselor and and she said no I don't know the counselor I don't feel comfortable talking to the counselor and I said how about any teachers and she goes I don't want to bother them I don't want to bother any of my teachers. I know that there's, right. So there was no one she felt comfortable talking to at all. And she didn't feel comfortable talking to her parents. Her parents were at work. She didn't want to bother them. She felt completely alone in a school with thousands of people. Wow. And that was just devastating to me because I know how much schools are trying to support their kids. The problem is, one of the ways they need to support them is with these connections and those connections aren't being built. And there's a lot of kids falling through the cracks. So her grades were not bad. And when kids grades are not bad or good, and I've heard this several times, this has happened where we've tried to get support in the schools and they've looked at their grades and said, well, their grades are good. So we can't prioritize them. And there's this false association between grades and mental health. And they are not even remotely associated. In fact, so many of the kids I work with that are really struggling are doing well in school. And that's part of the reason they're struggling. We cannot equate the two, but I also understand that even with 
those resources. There was like one social worker to hundreds of kids, hundreds. Yeah. And a lot of these kids are falling through the cracks because they're not top priority. And Sam was one of them. And later that day, she actually attempted suicide. She did not know what to do. She's fine. She was okay. She got the attention she needed from that. But why does she need to get to that point to get to the attention she needs? That's what we want to prevent. Yeah, that's what's so scary because we we truly are in a youth mental health crisis. And as you and I are seeing, we're also in a staff mental health crisis. There's yes. a lot of problems with retention because of the student behaviors that are emerging as a result of them being in crisis and nobody knowing really what to do about it. Uh, well, and I take that back. I think a lot of people have great ideas, but what we've been doing isn't isn't working. I mean, we've been right. doing the same thing for 30 years, right? Which you and I talk about in our book. And so what I'd love for you to do is walk people through why it doesn't work when we equip kids only. And I, let me tell you this, I'm going to, I'm speaking at a conference coming up and I've been engaging with people who I know are going there. And I asked them, what are you happy about um, with support of mental health in your school? And they, they're all saying so far that we're, we're having school counsel, our school counselor, and usually it's just one, our school social worker teaching kids skills over and over and over. So tell me what the problem is there. This is my favorite way to describe this. When we're teaching kids skills in their separate classes or in a separate assembly, um, do they still call it assemblies? Assemblies, <laughs> right? Um, it's like saying, I'm going to teach my child to speak French, um, but I'm just going to send her to a class a few times a year or an assembly that speaks French, teaches some French. And then the rest of the year, she's going to spend it in classes that do not speak French at all. Um, they speak different languages and they speak a different language at home and at school, but expect her to be able to speak fluent French. It's not going to happen. Um, so when we're equipping our kids with these skills and throwing them back into the same environments where people are not modeling these skills or speaking these skills, um, and in fact, often doing the very opposite of what we're teaching them many, many times, right? Um, they're not going to learn those skills. We're not, we're not setting them up to succeed at all. We're just making them more frustrated because they see how it could be, but what it's not. So they get angrier. Like, wait a second, you're telling me to do this, but no one else is doing this. Um, and this is why we need to do it in both schools and at home, because if they've got those skills and they're being modeled at home, but they spend the entire day at school where they're not modeled or vice versa, they are seeing them modeled at school, but then go home and they are there for the weekend and evenings and summer and they're not being modeled. They're not going to learn those skills. We need to equip the adults with these skills, when the adults are equipped and adults are using them, that's how they teach by modeling. We all know this. Kids learn by seeing, not by telling, um, by showing, not by telling. So if we're modeling them and the beauty of these skills is that they help us build connection. They help us understand and accept others. All of a sudden they're building connections with their students and the students now and we're, we're moving this so that it's not just one or two people in the building responsible for the mental health of 
all the kids in the building. We now have everyone in the building that has the capability of connecting with kids. And by doing so, they're not trained to deal with mental health issues after they've happened. They're trained to prevent mental health issues by connecting with kids and creating a place where kids feel safe and supported and accepted. And when they do, we will find that a lot of these behaviors that are really just turning schools upside down will no longer be needed. And that's our goal. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) It would be so nice. Yeah. I do envision that. I do know it's possible. I do believe we have a a cultural shift that we're all on the verge of because we have to be right. We've been doing this for 30 years. We've been trying to throw more at it. Like you and I have talked about a lot. I want you to tell people what it looks like because our listeners are educational leaders and visionaries for mental health change in our schools whichever role you're in, it doesn't matter as long as you're a visionary and want to be a part of that. So people who are positioned in our schools or in the community to support this, what is it that they need to do? What does that look like? If you're talking to an education leader who has some decision-making power, what should they be doing next? Focusing on how to train their teachers and the parents with these skills. And here's what one of the big pieces that we want to highlight Um, And this is where, you know, your experience as a teacher really comes into play is that this is not about making teachers do more or parents do more. And we know that a lot of the solutions out there today, one of the reasons that they are not sustainable is because they put a lot more on the teacher's plate and the parent's plate. And man, there's no room left. There is no room left. And the second you ask a teacher to do more, you're, you're setting the whole system up to fail. And it's not the teacher's fault. They can't do more. So our whole focus is how do we give them skills and teach them skills that they infuse into what they're already doing? It just becomes part of their daily interactions with their students, with each other. It becomes part of the daily interactions between parents and kids and each other, by the way, where they're modeling how we're treating one another too. Um, And so when we're able to bring these skills into our schools, and this is, again, it's providing them to the teachers and the staff and every single person in the building that interacts with kids, right? Every single person. When they learn these skills, we now move the responsibility to everyone, which spreads that out, right? And then we teach the parents. Man, so many parents are terrified and worried about their kids' mental health. And believe it or not, to some teachers don't believe this, we've heard. But parents are really doing their best. And I talk to these parents, man, they are doing everything they can think of to help their kids. The problem is they're not equipped. They don't know what to do. And when they don't know what to do, they either do nothing. And often what I'm seeing is they do something that seems like it'll help and seems to help in the short run, but in the long term actually creates more problems. And I'm seeing a lot of that. And so when we equip parents, they become part of the solution too. 
And that's what we want. And then when parents and teachers are on the same page and not pointing fingers and blaming one another, which I get why we do it, because we're taught everyone's tired of being blamed when we don't know what to do. And we're like, we're trying everything we can. Stop blaming me. Blaming me is not helping me. I'm doing what I know to do. So you telling me I'm doing it wrong doesn't help me do it better. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Let's help them do it better. Let's just help them do it better. And well, we, okay, go ahead. No, well, I, I was going to say, because that sparks a lot of thinking that we've had, you and I've had a lot of conversations with educators who've been talking about aggressive behavior from students. And so I know this is a really tough concept for people, but it is happening. So we do have to address this. So using what you just talked about and maybe some of like one tool um, and one approach you would use, what would you say to a, a leader who has seen aggressive behavior against their teachers without us trying to blame, right? Because a lot of times we're like, well, that student is bad or we've labeled that student. But I know this is a deep issue, so I'm not sure where you would want to start talking about this, but let's address that aggressive behavior from students to teachers right now. Right. And I, I want to point out first that our solution is really about the prevention. So what we're doing is trying to prevent those behaviors from occurring in the first place. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're so overwhelmed is that they're happening more and more and there aren't people in place to address them or equipped to address them. So our solution isn't about what do we do when all these kids are acting out? It's about how do we prevent all these kids feeling the need to act out, not acting out because they're being jerks. There's a reason underlying that, right? So when we get to that point, the people that are trained to address it now have the bandwidth to address it because there's not they're not being bombarded how, and we can now approach it from the place of there is an underlying reason behind the behavior. And this is one thing that we talk about all the time is that behavior is not the problem. And a lot of our solutions right now are addressing the behavior specifically when we do that without addressing the actual problem underlying behavior, the reason that behavior is existing, the reason that child feels the need to act in that way. When we're not addressing that, that behavior is going to keep coming back or manifesting in another way that's often even worse than the original way, right? right? We need to address why that's there. And we are not saying parents and teachers need to be mental health experts. Please, we definitely are not saying that. We want to make sure the mental health experts are available for situations like this. But in those moments, we can prevent it from escalating. And we do this by making sure, first of all, we are realizing that how we interact with the kids is triggering how they respond. All the kids that I talk to, and, and I mean, it's interesting. Everyone I talk to always believe that they are reacting to what the other person is doing. No one, no one believes they are the ones initiating the interaction. No one. Right. right. So if we approach it from the fact that this child's being difficult in initiating this, we start doing a one-up. We start going, well, if you're going to be that way, I'm going to be that way even more. 
and then they become more and we go up what we call the ladder of conflict, right? Nothing good ever comes out of climbing the ladder of conflict. But we let's, just- let's say something there too, because a lot of people will say, well, I have to assert, assort, no, sorry. I have to assert <laughs> my authority in this. You right. Know, I'm all fired up here because this is what we hear over yes. and over. So address that because we hear that all the time, Kim. I will. And I love that because I think many people misconstrue authority as the right to respect. And I want to challenge that. Authority means the responsibility to respect others. And so if you want to exert your authority and you want to gain control of the situation, you have to realize that the only thing that you absolutely have the ability to gain control over is yourself. That's it. So if we're sitting there with the goal of controlling somebody else and we are struggling to do this, this is where frustration comes with other people. If we are frustrated with somebody else, it's because we're trying to control what they do and they're not complying to that. Well, guess what? Very rarely are they going to comply. They may comply externally in the moment just to get you off their back or to stay out of trouble. But internally, mm -mm, they're probably even less willing to comply. And the respect level is definitely going down. The trust level is going down. The more you force somebody to comply, the less likely they're going to want to comply the next time. Right? Um, So asserting authority by being more aggressive, being louder, is doing the absolute opposite. What, where the power lies is at the bottom of that ladder. To regain any sort of control of that moment and to exert any sort of authority is to come down the ladder, is to be the one that is not reacting. It's the one that is going to control their own emotions. And what happens there? is when we be able to when we're able to get down there we are now not adding to the conflict which believe me the kids are watching so they're going to just keep one up on you it's just going to get out of control when we bring it down kids are going to see us bring it down we're not adding first of all which is great eventually not immediately eventually kids are going to start modeling us and coming down because we're showing them how to do that. We're showing them that that's where the power is, right? But if we don't do that, they're never going to learn. When we're when we're expecting them to calm down, when we're not calm, I mean, I, let's just think of that logically for one second. Mm-hmm. And they are watching, aren't they? I mean, it, yeah. I, we've seen the viral videos, and I love how you say that the litmus test is. Mm-hmm. What, how would you feel if this went viral? Right. Cause it has many teachers, I mean, have been caught in this viral video circumstances. And actually there was one teacher and I don't know what her story is. So I'm not coming down on her. I have no idea what's happened uh, prior to this. There's a lot of stuff going on. Right. Um, but she was very calm. However, she went and kind of hovered over the student. Do you remember seeing that? Yeah. And can you speak to why that is just as detrimental? as being loud. 
Yeah, it's it's loud with your body. It's still yeah. a power play, right? So anything that is trying to exert more power. And again, I understand the psychology of this. You know, you think of just even animals when they're when they're trying to protect themselves, they'll flare out their fur or their feathers to look bigger, right? That's what we try to do. We look bigger so we look more dangerous. Well, looking more dangerous to a child that is already feeling vulnerable because guess what? They don't act out if they're feeling okay. They just don't. They're acting out from a place of vulnerability and from a place of trying to protect themselves from that vulnerability. So you make a child feel even less safe. They're not going to shut. They may shut down. Sure, that's the flight, right? They may just freeze and shut down. But if they're in that state, that very rarely happens. They're going to escalate. They're warning signs. And we know how the brain works in stress. That amygdala is firing, firing, right? That stress response. It's just going to trigger that even more. It's just going to give them evidence that there's a reason for them to be in this state, right? They're going to show, oh my gosh, there really is danger. Maybe I imagined the danger. Maybe they did imagine the danger. And now you're giving them evidence that that danger really does exist. So they're not going to back down at all. So staying calm. But hovering is still exerting power. Now, I get it. We don't want to look weak. And that that I understand because we don't want to be victimized. So this isn't about looking weak. This is actually losing control ultimately looks weak, right? Right. When we're able to control the situation and the only thing we can control is ourselves, when we're able to control ourselves, but we're also able to respect the fact that something deeper is going on with that child. And this is hard because we've got to let go of a lot of assumptions. And we talk about this in our book too. Our brain needs assumptions. It depends on assumptions. So we can't get rid of assumptions. What we want to do is replace those assumptions with the assumption that something more is going on. Well, that's a great spot for you to, to mention the curiosity chain is one of the tools to help in this. Yeah. So the curiosity chain is something, and again, Charlie and I took evidence-based skills and pulled them all together and simplify them as much as we possibly could because one of the biggest issues we see with a lot of these skills is they're too complicated. You know, they're just in the heat of the moment. You're definitely not going to use them because they require way too much thinking and our minds are shut down. They're not open to thinking in that moment. So we've got to create skills that are easy to remember and easily accessible even when we're in that state of stress which our bodies are going to go into naturally and creating something that was still effective, but easy to remember and easy to do was very, very difficult to do. That's true. It really it was. was so difficult That's why it to took do. us almost a year. <laughs> I know. So you look at some of these things and you're like, well, that's simple. And I'm like, if you say that, thank you, because that's what we were going for. Um, so the curiosity chain is one of those, and this is simply making sure that you, you 
assume that your first assumption, your first reaction is really your initial theory. This is just, this is your brain going to the first place it can think of to fill in the blanks. Thank you, brain, for that initial starting point. But that ain't the answer. That's the starting point. From there, we're going to go. What else is going on? Right? What is happening here? And we just ask, I wonder. I wonder what's going on. And so we can start at that initial theory. And then we fill in with actual evidence. And what I love about this curiosity chain is it leads right into empathetic listening, which is in order for me to understand what's going on, I need to listen. And listening is not just to words. Listening is to their behavior. Their behavior is telling you a lot of information, a lot of information. Um, But when we look at it as the behaviorist has to be shut down rather than I need to understand what they're trying to tell me, we're just sending them again the message that we don't care what they think. But when we say, I want to learn from what they're doing right now, they're doing their best. They're, they're, it's their best attempt to explain to us what's going on. Mm-hmm. I love it. And Charlie, often when it gets to that point, it's because they've already made several other attempts to communicate what's going on and have not been heard. If we start listening to them sooner, they're not going to have to get to that point where they're like, I'm at my limit now. I'm going to do whatever I can. And I know they can't ignore me now. If we don't ignore them earlier down the chain, right, earlier in our interactions with them, and I'll, I'll tell parents, and I've actually had people write me back going, oh my gosh, I haven't even thought of that. But if, and If a behavior or something feels like it's come out of left field, you're like, I have no idea where that came from. That is a clear sign that you have missed when they've tried to tell you before. Yeah, that's interesting. It's so interesting because you're right. Some of the behaviors are louder than others. And when there's especially a pattern And so part of equipping all the adults working with kids is to notice when those things are happening. And a lot of times, as you and I I put in this, um, the notice piece of each skill is how are we reacting? How is our body responding to something which is very trauma? That's a trauma lens if if you know about the, the trauma perspective, but how is our nervous system responding to that? kid or other person. And that indicates to us something's different. Right. And it's funny you mentioned before about how simple this is. I mean, the curiosity chain is like, what are we missing? It's something so simple. Like, I wonder what's going on. What are we missing? These kinds of questions are so, so simple. But when I was working with a group of principals at first, they were like, like not, you know, they were questioning the simplicity of it. And I said, listen, Imagine that you wrote a 25 page lit review and you synthesize it down to one paragraph and they're like, ah, okay. Because that's very tough to do. There's a lot of critical thinking. There's a lot of um, analyzing that we had to do to do that. And so I'm glad you brought that up because it, it is important for anybody listening to this 
that if you want the impact in schools and to provide immediate relief right now in schools and our families, by the way, and to the whole system, we have to be simple. We have to simplify it because we're overwhelmed and we won't remember to do it and we won't do it reflexively otherwise. And I'd love for you to pull parents into this now because I know um, they're always there in the background, but how accountable do they need to be for these behaviors of their kids? Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's hard to even classify parents because there's such a wide range of parenting, right. And parenting styles. I will say, obviously the kids, the parents I work with are inner, you know, they are engaged or else they wouldn't be bringing their kids to me. Right. Um, a lot of them though are, and they're very accountable. They're holding themselves accountable. What I see though is often what they prioritize, what they need to be accountable for is counter to what their kids need. And so a lot of parents focus and they do this because the schools are giving them this direction is that parents need to be accountable for their kids' grades. And what I end up seeing is that parents are so accountable for their kids' grades that they own their kids' grades. And they're now on top of their kids day and night about their grades. And this is causing a lot of conflict. And, you know, I'll talk to kids all the time and I'll ask them, what is getting in your way of doing better in school? Like you just said to me, you're not doing as well as you'd like. And <laughs> nine times nine times out of 10, it's my parents. If they would just let me be and let me do my work, I would do my work. And parents don't believe that at all. They say, hey, I stepped back for a minute and they went and played their video games. So I don't believe that. Well, the problem with that is we step back for a minute we haven't given them ownership yet. If we step back for a minute and we jump right back in a minute later when they don't do it, we never gave them ownership at all. We got to give them a chance to kind of fail and shuffle and figure it out. But when they have ownership and they start taking, um, when they start enjoying and feeling that positive experience of doing well for themselves, it changes everything. So parents being accountable, let's get back to the whole thing. Parents are being accountable for a lot of things. What we need to do is help them, A, prioritize what they're being accountable for, right? Even bigger, because most, a lot of the parents, again, I'm, I'm seeing are accountable, being equipped so they know what they can do because parents feel frustrated that they're being held accountable for behaviors and things that they have no idea how to address. Yeah. Like those big aggressive behaviors. Yeah. And we know prevention is key to that, but the big aggressive behaviors, I think parents are really struggling. Like, I don't know what to do. In fact, I want my kid to feel successful in school, but they're not going to try now because they're already done. They're avoiding, they're not showing up to school at yeah. all. So how do I snap my fingers and make them feel successful? And it won't happen that way. And we know it. So where do parents like that start? Like, where do, where do we go with parents whose kid is just not showing up to school or is showing aggression? Yeah. Um, so 
Aggression comes from a place of frustration. Aggression is a place of you are not listening to me. I am not being represented in the decisions that are being made. Um, my feelings are not being taken into account. And I am now so frustrated and angry. I don't know what else to do. And I've heard this from kid after kid after kid after kid. Yeah, me too. They are sure. reacting to how they feel they are being treated. And parents are often very surprised by this um, because that's not at all what they've ever intended. Yeah. But when we break down how they're addressing things, here's the message kids get all the time when we are like laser focused on their grades and laser focused on teaching them responsibility by giving them chores and laser focused on, you know, how their tone of voice and all the things that yes, as parents are important to us because we're accountable for their behaviors and we want to teach them to do it correctly. What we end up doing, however, is constantly focusing on what they are doing wrong and correcting that. And when kids get nonstop messages of you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you should be doing this different, you could do this better, constant, and that's what they feel, yeah. they give up. I can't do anything right. Why do I even bother? Nothing I do is enough. And the parents are just trying to make sure they're like, I'm accountable. I need to make sure that they're doing things right. So I get it. That's the pressure can't parents feel. I'm accountable. I got to do this. This is where the approach is not helping. The approach is shutting their kids down. It's their kids are reacting aggressively. They're avoiding school altogether. They're anxious. They're depressed because they are given, they don't have hope. What I tell parents to do is to start, and teachers, by the way, anyone that's interacting with children of all ages, focus on what they do right, please. Hmm. Focus on what they do right. And I have, so often I have parents kind of jokingly, but not so much go, well, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, my friends, is the very problem. If parents believe there is nothing they do right, then that's the message they are giving their kids. And that's the why their kids have given up. If parents don't see anything their children are doing right or teachers, they are not looking hard enough. Because I can guarantee you, majority of the time, they are doing things right. We just take it for granted. We overlook it because we're so laser focused and hyper aware of what they do wrong. You know, they can do right over here, boo, 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 boo. And then all of a sudden they do one wrong thing and we go, Whoop! and our, we look, we missed all the other stuff until they do something wrong and we point it out. And that's why kids are like, oh my gosh, like no matter what I do, I want parents to be, and teachers, I mean, just get anyone that's dealing with children, please. Um, I mean, even we've dealt with doctors and coaches, counselors and coaches that do yeah. this too. And I, I get so frustrated that like, they'll actually lecture my child in front of me. And I'm like, did you not just see all this other stuff? You just focused on the one thing like, uh, um, hmm. focus on what they do. Right. And here's why, here's how it benefits them and us. 
when we focus on what they do right, we now highlight what it is to do things well. And when they go, oh my gosh, that's what I need to do. That's what you mean. That's first of all, now they know they have evidence of this is exactly how, when we tell them what not to do, that doesn't help. Okay, great. There's a million different ways I could do it. I'll just keep trying. This now says, okay, this is a way that works. They feel good. Look, I was recognized for doing something right. That feels amazing. I don't, my, the reward is feeling good, feeling recognized, feeling acknowledged for that. When we focus on things right, that they do right, guess what? We start noticing more and more of what they do right because we're retraining our brain. Our brain right now is trained to look for what they do wrong. Let's retrain our brain to look for what they do right. And when we retrain our brain and we start seeing more of what they do right, we start acknowledging more of what they do right. And guess what? They start doing more right. When we focus on what they do wrong and acknowledge what they do wrong, they start doing more wrong. Whatever we focus on is what we're going to get more of. Hmm. So let's focus on what they do right. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, that's the approach we even use with the schools and the districts, right? Like, yep. what are you already doing that's working well? Great. Keep doing that. And now let's exactly. start from there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So Dr. Kim, you know that we could talk um, probably for about 25 hours right now. <laughs> I believe we've done that before. <laughs> we, we sure have. And listeners, by the way, uh, there are times where Dr. Kim and I spent literally one hour deciding on one word that would we would use in a training <laughs> session because it matters that much. It really yeah. does matter. We have to make sure that we um, think this through completely. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap this up. I want you to talk about where people can find the book and the incredible book study kit that's out yeah. there and available because that's how we're going to have a wide reach. So could you talk about that for me? For, yeah. For so, yeah. So the book can be found at thrivingschool.org. Um, and I'm sure you have the link and there you can get information about the book and the book study we created, which again is in line with our mission to not give teachers more to do. So what we did is we did all the work ourselves. Um, we created the discussion questions. We even created templates for the email. So you don't have to think about what emails you're going to write to people each week to send it out. Everything you need to lead a book study group um, so that you are freed up just to have the discussion. That's it. You're set. Get the book. You send, you get the questions. We have worksheets to hand out to everyone. You're done. And you get to just talk about school mental health and figuring out how you and your school can improve it. And I know everyone listening, I'm sure, wants to improve the mental health in their school because we all want to improve mental health, right? We all want to, no matter how good it is, we want to make it better. Um, and I know a lot of schools are really struggling with this and there's a lot of kids um, that are falling through the cracks that we want to support to before they get to the point of being serious cases as well. So this book study is there to make it really easy for you guys to just enjoy and get the most out of most out of the solution. 
Yeah, it's a great way to pull parents back into the school community too. Yes. Right? I mean, we can get not only the educators and staff, maybe do a staff book study, um, but pull parents into that book study and get that conversation going because that parent voice is so important to keep them engaged. Do you think that's going to help with this conversation? I think so because I, I think parents and teachers need to be on the same team. And all too often, we feel like we're on opposing teams. Either the teachers win or the parents win. And when that happens, I'm going to be really cliche here. Nobody wins. Hmm. And the people that lose the most are the kids. So if we can get on the same team going in the same direction, because let's face it, we want the same thing. (laughs) We all want our kids to feel better and we want to feel better. And we want to, we want teachers to be able to teach again and not spend all their time focused on addressing misbehavior, which man, every teacher I talk to, that is their biggest concern is that they don't have time to do what they were hired to do. They're spending time dealing with misbehavior, which they're not trained or equipped to do. And it's, it's getting messy. And so we need to all work together moving towards the same goal in order for this to work. So if somebody wants to connect with you directly, how do they do that? Yeah, they can go to drcam at thrivingschool.org. And that's my direct email address. Um, And you can find my information at thrivingschool.org as well. Awesome. Okay. So my last question that I'm going to ask everybody is what is the one thing that you want to leave our listeners with? The one thing is that If we are going to resolve the mental health crisis, we need to work together and we need to start with the adults. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim, for being here. I'm so excited about what we're doing. Me too.